The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we come before you, not to you at Zion, Horeb, with smoke and fire and trembling and in fear. But we come to you enthroned above, glorious in all of your splendor, in all of your displayed grace and goodness and love to us. We come to you and you speak to us and I pray, Father, then this morning you would give grace to us that we would not turn away from you who speaks. Because it's not that Horeb's not true. It's not that Sinai's false. It's just that mediated through the grace of the cross, through Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, the wrath and the fear of Horeb is turned away. But if we turn away from you, what else is left to us? So give us grace that we would not turn away, that we would listen to you as you speak and would hold fast to you, would cling to you. Use your scriptures this morning towards that end, I pray. Fasten your people to you, Father. For those here who are not your people, who don't believe in you yet, Lord, call them. Work in them by your spirit. Open their eyes. Give life to your word, Father, Son, and Spirit. For the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. Imagine yourself some Wednesday afternoon at work at the office. Doesn't that, that doesn't actually matter if you're a man or a woman, if you actually work at an office or if you're a high school and you don't work yet at all. But just imagine that you're at work one Wednesday afternoon at the office and you get a quick call from your spouse. Phone rings and you answer, hello? Hi, hon. How's it going today? Oh, you know, okay. I've, you know, I had a hard meeting this morning, but um, I'm here now kind of plunking away at some stuff and making a little bit of progress. Why? What's up? Well, a quick question for you. Has your paycheck been automatically deposited yet in the bank account? Uh, let's see what day is Wednesday. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it was. Yeah, why? Well, I'm just staying here at the ATM with the prostitute that I usually sleep with on Wednesday mornings. And I, I owe this person for the last month, and so I, I need to take out some money, but I wanted to be sure that I didn't take out too much and get an overdraft penalty. So I'm just wondering if it was in there. So thanks. See you later. Bye. What? What's going through your mind as the phone goes dead? I hope this is some sort of a sick joke. But what if it's not a joke? Then there is all kinds of problem in that situation. There's adultery. There's the, the use of you to fund the adultery. And there's an obvious, total unawareness that this is a problem. Call you up, hun? See you later? There's all kinds of problem in that situation, the behavior in it and the attitude in it. And it's the same kind of behavior and attitude that Moses warns us about in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to be in the middle of Deuteronomy 4 today. And this is by no means the, the, the most graphic, the, the most alarming treatment of the issue of idolatry in the Old Testament. It starts here and goes up from this, from this point. God is really serious about the issue of idolatry and very often compares it to adultery. So it's, it's all over the scriptures, and this is not the most alarming passage, yet it is a clear one with a strong warning to us in it as well as an amazing note of hope at the end. 
Last week, in the beginning of chapter 4, we saw an emphasis on obedience to God's commandments. A challenge to us to obey him first in the heart. An obedience that begins with what's going on in here, an, an aligning of our internal beings to him, a fearing of the Lord, a giving of our heart and soul to him, a remembering of who he is and what he's done, that then leads to the obedience to his commandments. And we're commanded to be serious about obedience and to teach our children and our grandchildren after us the same thing about the heart leading to obedience to his commandments. To point out that his blessing is tied to obedience. That was last week. And now as we move into the middle of chapter 4, we get a treatment of what is, in a sense, the kind of the opposite idea. If we're talking about obedience to his commandments, here in the middle of the chapter what we have is a not holding fast to God means a turning aside to something else or someone else or some other ideas. Idolatry. We do that at our own peril. So we see a warning this morning. And it's a warning that has an obvious application for people back then and has an application for us today. So when I'm reading this, don't just think of idolatry as the carving of images and therefore something that we don't do. Maybe they did back then or, or perhaps some backwards isolated cultures today still do, but we don't. No, in, in fact, I, idolatry is alive and well in our own living rooms and garages and offices and hearts and minds. This is a problem for us, too. So with that, let me turn to the text, Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 to 31. I'm going to read the whole passage. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor, ear, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you 
or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. It's a fascinating passage. It begins with a warning, similar to how last week verses 9 to 14 began with a warning to take care, to guard your soul diligently, and then describe what they'd seen at Mount Horeb. Same, same thing today. Watch yourselves closely, and then here's the argument. Because at Horeb, you didn't see any form. There's an argument here. Watch yourselves. You didn't see any form at Horeb, so don't make a form. Don't try to reduce God to a particular form, to an image. He didn't present himself that way. He did present himself with fire and smoke to display his majesty, but he didn't give you a form, so don't make one. Beware. Don't do that. That would be to act corruptly, which is obviously a negative thing. Something that's corrupted is ruined or destroyed, corroded. So the issue here is not just don't misbehave, but it's don't act destructively or ruinously. Idolatry, the the shaping of God into a form, is a corrupt action from the heart. That's what idolatry is, a, a turning in a person, a corruption of a person that involves moving, picture this, moving God away and moving ourselves to the center, and then trying, in a sense, trying to become God as we make other things. And as we determine that that's what I'll worship, that's how I'll worship it, that's what it will require of me and what I will pay to it. I'm in charge, making my gods, and he's been set aside somewhere. That idea of setting aside God and me becoming God to make the creation again is emphasized in verses 16 to 19 and how after talking about corrupt action, look what he does. He walks through the creation order with a twist. It's in reverse. What do we do? We put ourselves into the center and then the first thing we make is we make gods in our own image. We make little gods in the image of male and female. And then it winds down from there, working backwards to the creation account. The animals on the earth, fish and birds and whatnot. So you get all the way back to just the very elements, sun, moon, stars. We're corrupted and unwinding the creation from the throne on on which I have placed myself. That's the corruption of humanity, a a common temptation for every single one of us. Now we probably don't I imagine probably don't take knife to wood and whittle out a little God. But we all are tempted to and commonly engage in this practice of of taking God and moving him off to the side, placing ourselves in the middle and determining what in the creation or what I can fashion from the creation to which I will give my heart, my devotion, in which I will place my hope, give my energy, my time to. Now, I may still phone him up and say, Hey, can you give me a few more resources from which I can fashion my gods? Thank you very much. But in fact, my heart's flirting with something else. That's idolatry. And it is totally unwarranted and impermissible for those of us who claim to be his. It's the emphasis of the end of 19 into verse 20, where he says there at the end of 19, the sun and the moon and the stars that I've given to everybody under heaven. He's not just saying, you know, in fact, there's only one sun. There's only one moon. There's only one set of stars. Everybody's got it. That's obvious. He's not saying that. You can see that there's a, a contrast. I've given all of this to them, verse 20, but you, the grammar in verse 20 underlines the you, all of that's for them, but you, something different. You, the Lord has called out of the iron furnace of affliction, out of Egypt, and he's made you his own inheritance, his special possession. He married you. He wedded himself to you, not not them, you. Like a couple might talk about, you know, four houses down and three streets over, there's somebody lives in that house. I don't care what's going on in their marriage. I care about mine. You, I have wedded I've claimed you. There's a special relationship there. 
they can worship whatever they're going to worship, which is not to say that God approves of idolatry. It's to say he's got a focus. He's talking to the people who claim to be his own, in, with whom he is in a special covenant relationship. That's his focus here. And this is inappropriate for you. There will be consequences for that. And Moses offers himself as exhibit A. In fact, I, Moses would say, I was in a a special, unique relationship of all the people of God. I'm his spokesman. I'm the one that got to see his hind parts. I saw him differently. I communed with him differently. And, And one afternoon, I struck the rock twice and took his place. Shall I give to you water? Who gives water? God does. Moses took his place. Idolatry. You will not enter the land. Once. I'm exhibit A. Don't go there. I will stay here and I will die here. You will go over there. Don't follow my path. Because there will be consequences. You're going to go over to the land and you're going to take it. Verse 23. But watch out lest you forget lest you forget the covenant of the Lord with which he made you and turn aside to idolatry. And if this evil corruption arises in the future, verse 25 and following, take it to the bank. That's what he means by I call heaven and earth as witnesses. Usually, you would want to call God as witness, but God's one of the two parties here, so he needs to call somebody else as a witness. And the biggest things he can think of, heaven and earth, I call heaven and earth as witness against you. If you go down this path, the consequence will be destruction. You will be cast out of the land, utterly destroyed, driven out, driven to the nations, left few in number, consigned over to the worship of that which you have worshipped, the works of your hands. That's what you want? Then have them, God will say. That is stern and serious beyond measure. It cannot be overemphasized how serious this is. Moses is telling them, this is how you perish. I promise. Watch me die here in this land as evidence. Stern beyond measure, but it is not the last word, which is amazing you, you got to get the flow of this passage. It is stern, and then it turns, and it's amazing. It is amazing. Turned over to the silent wood and rocks and the demons who stand behind all idols, the judgment of God will be seen to be the saving discipline of God. For some. But from there where they'd been scattered. From there, you will seek the Lord and you will find him when you search for him with all your heart and your soul. It's amazing. You'll search for him and you'll find him when you turn to him on the inside genuinely, when you search for him with all of your heart and all of your soul, not just start keeping the rules again. When your heart turns to him, you will find him. And we're going to spend some time considering those verses in a bit, the hope they contain there. But to get to that point, it would be helpful to understand a little bit of how this section opens up the larger plan of redemptive history. If you know anything of the, the general flow of the Old Testament, you can read 25 to 31, and you can see all the Old Testament in it. It traces out 1,500 years and a couple of verses here. They're going to go into the land. They're going to possess it. As time passes, the nation of Israel is going to be corrupted. It's going to start pretty quickly, and it's going to cycle down. You can think through the the book of the Judges, which follows shortly after this. They're in the land, and they, they turn away, and they cycle down, and God acts, and they come back. And then things go poorly again, and God acts, and they come back. 
This happens throughout the judges, but what's happening as time progresses is that the, the peaks are not quite as high and the valleys are a little deeper. So it's not quite straight across, it's kind of a, of a down thing. And as the idolatry in the land sets in and takes hold, it proves fatal, just as Moses said it would. The prophets are full of references to this in Moses. Warning, warning, warning about idolatry and the coming casting out of the land, the exile. Until it finally happens, the deepest of all deep valleys. They are cast out. They cease to be a people. Scattered to the nations. But while in the exile, something will happen. The remnant of the people of God, those not destroyed and hardened, they will earnestly turn and genuinely seek in the latter days. Literally, in, in the, the behind days, the after days, the last days. So 25 to 31 establishes this cycle. And then it also begins this very common theme throughout the Old Testament of a coming time of restoration, of fixing it. When God would intervene and would act and would deliver his people would wipe away their sin, would cast down those who were their enemies and were oppressing them. The final days, the last days, the end, the hope. Again, you read through the prophets and it's elaborated on constantly. The day of salvation, that day, those days, the day. The most famous passage, perhaps one that we know best, is one in Joel. And it shall come to pass in latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your young men, your young women, they'll prophesy. And your old men, they'll see, see visions and dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. He's going to act at some point in the future. The future from Moses, the future from Joel. He's going to act in the latter days. To deliver, to save, to show his mercy. To rescue his people from their idolatry. That's the passage for today. It has two impulses. One, the longer one at the beginning, the impulse of, of warning, the, the stern warning. And the second one at the end, this, this impulse of hope, the impulse of mercy. And from those two impulses, I'm going to form my two observations for this morning. So begin with the first observation. The Lord is jealous and will not share his glory with another. The Lord is jealous and will not share his glory with another. That is the explicit point of verse 24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, which explains his reaction against idolatry. Before we go there, though, we need to think about this idea of jealousy, because isn't jealousy a sin? I mean, commonly, we think of jealousy as something you don't want to be, Sinful, but here God says that he, in fact, is jealous. And, and often, most of the time, in our relationships, jealousy is a sin. Jealousy is bad because it's, it stems from this desire to be first in place or in status or in honor or in reputation and in anger or frustration if you're above me. Sometimes it leads to envy and, and fighting, plotting and scheming. Jealousy, most commonly between people, is sin. But you can think of it, it is also sometimes used positively. Think of the example of a husband and wife again. It is not just permitted, it is appropriate that a husband be jealous that his wife's love be for him and vice versa. That he be first and foremost in her affections. That's appropriate. Now, of course, we being humans, we can twist even that and say that I should be the only one that my spouse has any affection or love for. And we humans, we, we can twist that. What's wrong in us, though, because as we desire to be first, so often we desire to be first in places where we must not be first because we're not better than. Or we're not total in goodness. What we desire for us and is often sinful isn't the same for God. Who should God desire to be first in all the universe? 
himself. Because he is first in all the universe. He is the best. He is the most glorious. He is the most worthy of honor. And his jealousy, if he is demoted from that or moved out of that, his jealousy is appropriate. In fact, righteous. Required even. If he were to say, I don't care, let somebody else be first, that'd be sin. Be unrighteous. And in fact, it would be unloving. If you let people wander away and follow after other things that are not supremely valuable and beautiful and worthy of their lives, it is appropriate for God to be jealous. Permissible and in fact righteous is not sin. He's a jealous God, a consuming fire, which presents a huge problem for us. Because he's a consuming fire. It means that he is a fire who will consume all of that which demotes him and moves him aside and seeks to elevate itself or other things into his place. And that is a description of me and you. I've got a problem with a jealous God who is a consuming fire. Or he has a problem with me. And that's a tremendous predicament. You're rampant, repeat idolaters, giving our hearts to that which is not God. And as we do this, we arouse the jealousy of God and kindle his fire. We do that in a couple of related yet different ways. Think about this to kind of help understand how idolatry creeps into your own life. We could talk about God over here and yet give our heart and our affection and our trust to something else. That's, that's the, the essence of the prostitute example from the beginning. Something else over here that's, that's obviously clearly distinct from God. We can talk to both of them. We can engage with both of them. And in our minds and everybody's minds, they're clearly two different things. These things out here, idols, in this first way that we're dishonoring God, we, we have these idols out here and we, we regularly shift from idol to idol to idol to idol, shopping constantly, looking for the one that will deliver the goods and finally fill me up and give me peace, sustain my heart, provide joy for me. The danger, if I list anything in particular or, or list a few things in particular, the danger is that if I don't put my finger exactly on what it is that you struggle with, you'll think you don't struggle with this. But you do. You're just like me. You're just like the, the old theologian who knew himself well said, our hearts are idol factories. Busy day in and day out churning out idols. We don't, we don't have a knife whittling away at the wood, but we do. As fast as we possibly can. Because we put that one out there, worship it for a few days and find out that didn't do it. I better make another one. We're constantly churning them out. They come from within us. Often they are permissible things. Loved inordinately. Loved out of order. Perfectly permissible things, but loved above him. They take on the place of supremacy. That's when it becomes an idol. We're restless in soul. So instead of following the advice of the psalmist and setting the Lord always before me and therefore having my heart glad and my whole being rejoicing, instead of doing that, I set him off and I go play golf or I surf the internet aimlessly for hours or I eat a whole bag of potato chips. All of which I have done. Somewhat of a joke in my house that if dad's sitting there with the bag of potato chips, something's not right in him. <laughs> He's not just hungry. Potato chips are perhaps innocent. Others of us use alcohol. Far greater damage. Not just ice cream. Sports. You know, whatever. Idle, 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 idle. We're shopping 
Because something's got to fill the hole here. He, he, not him. Something's got to fill this. Was shopping, but never satisfied. Because it doesn't work. These things neither hear nor speak. They're rocks and trees. Flesh and bone cannot do it. But we try. Removing God and putting this thing into his place that we bow down to. That's idolatry. The, the second way, though, that's related but slightly different, beyond the prostitute type of idolatry where we have God and something else that's clearly different, there's another more subtle yet equally dangerous type of idolatry. And I'm going to try to be discreet here while also being clear. This time the setting is not spouse and someone else. It's only spouse one person opposite you, spouse, and as you're there with your spouse in a romantic setting, full of emotion, you start to talk, but what you're saying sounds more like a description of and a praise of the next-door neighbor, or perhaps some celebrity. See what I'm getting at there? You're with one person, but there's some other person that you're with. To quote a, to, actually to paraphrase a, a pastor that I heard recently, I can, he said, I can passionately praise my wife's dark eyes and jet black hair. But the fact of the matter is that she's a blue-eyed blonde, so it's not going to go well for me. She's the one that I'm with right here, but as I'm talking, she begins to think she's not the one I'm with in my mind. You get that? There's a problem there of a different sort than the first type, but equally, tr equally troubling. You're right there with the right person, but in mind, you're admiring someone else. You're giving yourself to something else, and to bring that back to God we must love him as he is. Not like we imagine him to be. The whole world, every religion other than Orthodox biblical Christianity, and alarmingly scads of people who call themselves Orthodox biblical Christians, worship a God that is reasonable to them, not the one who has been revealed. That is idolatry. I can praise his dark eyes and black hair all day long, but he's a blonde. And it not only does not honor him, it insults him. It is idolatry. We must become a people who takes our God from the pages of the scriptures and bows down and serves, bows down to and serves him and him alone. This particularly shows up in what I might call difficult doctrines. List off a few. The doctrine of hell, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of providence over evil and how it connects to God's foreknowledge his control of the world. We could keep listing them. There, there are plenty. And at numerous points along the road, people in the world and people who even call themselves Christians say, and I have had this said to me numerous times, and sometimes I kind of cringe at it because the person actually means it. Sometimes I don't think they really mean it. But when we're talking about something, some doctrine, some idea, and the person will say to me, maybe it's a Christian, maybe it's not, that's not the kind of God I worship. That's not the God I know. And sometimes they really mean that. Sometimes they're Christians claiming to be Christians. And they say that. And I cringe and I say, it's not the God you know. That's true and that's the problem. 
Sometimes they just mean it in dialogue with me to try to correct my misshaped view of God, and, and we all struggle with this. But sometimes, and here's where the problem lies, not just in mistakes I make, but in deliberate mistakes I make. There are whole groups of people who call themselves Christians that mark out doctrines that they will not allow for because it seems unreasonable to them. That's a problem. It's idolatry. It's sin in any of the creation, but it's high treason for those of us who claim allegiance to him. For those of us who claim to be his, who have experienced his goodness and tasted of his deliverance and in some sense have been brought out of the world, out of the furnace and brought into the protecting covenant community where his grace is seen and his spirit lives and works. For we've seen that and tasted it. We live in a community that shares his values that is seasoned by the fruit of the spirit. A community within which there is evidence that God is real and it's not suppressed or twisted or denied. He's he's alive and vivid right in front of our eyes. A community in which the word of God is, I trust, faithfully taught in numerous settings week after week. To sit in that setting after the cross with the scriptures in hand and to mark him out and say, I will not listen to them. I will form a God of my own imagination. I will move over and bow down to things of my own creation. In the words of Hebrews 12 that has this passage in mind, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we refuse him who warns from heaven? Conclusion, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. Deuteronomy 4 on his mind. That's the first impulse of this passage, the first observation. Our God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. Not a different God that we imagine. He won't share us with another in our praise, our giving of ourselves to another. He wants us. And that leads to the second remarkably contrasted impulse. The second observation. This comes as good news on the hopes of on, on the heels of, of that stern two thirds of the passage, three fourths of the passage. The second observation, the Lord is merciful and faithful and will not abandon his children. The Lord is merciful and faithful and will not abandon his children. Again, that is also explicit in verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Faithful in that he will not renege on his promise made to Abraham to give him a people and to give him a place. Now clearly he never promised Abraham that every single one of the people who physically descends from you will be there. He didn't promise that. He promised that he would have a seed. The Bible elaborates on that a lot. But he keeps that promise. I'm going to give him a people and a place. That's stated in verse 31. But the mercy of God is described in the several verses that precede verse 31. And the word for, at the beginning of 31, sends us back into them. 31 says, for he will be merciful. Well, we've got to go back and see what's, what's, be, what's before that. Something previous is the case because of, or for, something previous is the case because of the mercy of God. Verse 29. From there, from the places where the Lord will scatter them, there you will seek the Lord and you will find him. Then verse 30, restating verse 29 in different terms. 
When all this happens to you, you will return to him and obey him. That's seek him and find him. You'll return and obey. Put those together. These verses are depicting a future repentance, a returning that is a seeking of the Lord that's contrasted with the earlier turning away from him and and chasing after idolatry. So there's a contrast there. And it's an internal turning, not just an external one. It's an internal turning, heart and soul. That will happen because the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. The mercy and faithfulness of God is causal here. Mercy and the faithfulness causes an internal turning. When you think carefully about this to see how it causes it. His mercy does not simply cause a turning in this sense. That the people who, who turned away from God wander over here, he gives them over to their idols, and they say, after they live in that for some time, say, this is terrible. I think I'm going to go back. That, that's how the prodigal son works. And that is a piece of what's happening here, but it's not the full picture. He does turn them over to their idols. I'm, I'm, going, to give that, I'm going to give you to that. If that's what you want, I'll give it to you. And there will be a learning process in that. But to take it a step further, the reason that they're there is because of the mercy of God that sent them there. His mercy sent them. The text says, how did they get into the foreign nations? God sent them. How did they come under this slavery of all these idols? God gave them over to it. And in any sense that those idols turn them by by the frustration that it creates, that's because God put them in a situation to be frustrated. It's it's God at work there in putting them in the situation. But furthermore, if you go to verse 31 then, he's a merciful God, he will not leave you. Why not? Because he's going to keep his promise. That's saying that God has an idea here. I made a promise. I'm going to keep it. Therefore, I'm going to be merciful and turn them. He keeps his promise. We don't keep his promise for him. So he doesn't just turn us over to it and say, well, let's see if you come back or not. He turns us over to it and through it brings us back. That's how his mercy is active here. His mercy awakens us heart and soul. His mercy causes us to seek him. His mercy is delivering us from the penchant to worship idols, awakening us to the goodness of worshiping him. It's his mercy at work, causing an internal heart awakening. How? How does that happen? He just says that it's going to happen. He doesn't say how. The key to answering the how question is to answer the when question. When is that going to happen? In the latter days. When are the latter days? Acts 2.17. Speaking at Pentecost... Amidst the overflowing outpouring of the Spirit of God, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. This is what Joel was talking about. Right here, right now. In the latter days, I will pour out my Spirit. Peter is saying, on evidence of Joel and what he's seeing right in front of him, this is that time. This is the latter days, begun right now here in Christ. We live in the latter days. Right now is the end. Not not the fullness. We're still between promise and fullness too. But a big chunk of the first fruits has come. The latter days have been inaugurated. The Spirit has been poured out. Christ has come. So the mercy of God can flow. All of this points us to the cross. If you read this end of this passage with the idea that the latter days is Jesus, then what you have is 
when you are in tribulation, all these things come upon you, in the time of Jesus, you will return to the Lord your God. God has turned the clock of redemptive history. At the cross, he's turned this up really big corner. In sending Jesus, he has provided mercy that cleanses us from our idolatry. You get in on that by saying, I am an idolater, give me your mercy, not by denying idolatry. The cross does something amazing. If you feel the, the blunt force of our God as a consuming fire, a jealous God, if you feel that and you look through your life at the idolatry, you see a huge problem that God said he would deal with in the latter days at the cross. And the cross then becomes hugely important because it's got to be that big to deal with this big of a problem. What happened at the cross? Most of us know this. I'm not going to tell you anything new. But think about it. What happened at the cross for you? You, you idolater. What happened for you there? The consuming fire of God was poured out on his son and not on you. Bless God for that. The wrath of God due to you was poured out on him and God is satisfied with that. And counting that on your record says, then you are righteous in my sight, not an idolater worthy of my punishment. An idolater, yes, but a righteous cleansed one. Bless God, praise the Son. He has dealt with your wickedness. The evil that he calls there, you do this evil. It is evil. And we should run from it when we see it in our lives. And we should also say, thank God that I have some place to run to. Somebody once said that the only place to flee from God angered is to God satisfied. God is satisfied at the cross. Run to him there. Every time you see idolatry in your life, run away from it and run back to him, trusting in his mercy, which is available to you because his son went to the cross. You have to remind yourself of that every day. He's wiped away your sin, and he's also cut you free from the mandatory turning to idolatry. That's part of human nature. You see what I'm saying there? Human nature, human beings from birth, we have this idol factory in us that's churning out stuff. And before Christ, we have no plan B. We keep running to that. We need not run to it now. We do. It's still there churning the stuff out, but we can say no to it. And that's because Christ has set you free from that. That's important because there's still plenty of responsibility. He sets us free from the idolatry. He cleanses us from it, but we still have to fight against it. The commands throughout this passage are legion. Take care. Watch yourselves. Beware. You will seek. You will search. You will return. That, that's you active. Empowered and enabled by him. But it's you active. We have to fight against idolatry. There's no release here from responsibility. There's an empowering of it. But as we muddle through failing and trying again and failing and trying again and failing and trying again, because he is a merciful God and will not abandon us, we have some place to run, some place to be forgiven, some place to be cleansed. 
It's a glorious thing. So turn and repent, maybe for the first time today. Maybe this is all striking you brand new. Or turn and repent again if it's not. There's an awesome God speaking here. You know, they can preach kind of some, some themes here, idolatry and, and this theme of, of repentance. I can preach about the cross. But the thing that kind of stands over it is that this text is preeminently about an awesome God. A God who is a consuming fire and jealous and who is merciful and faithful to his promise. A God who says, I will not share my glory with another. I will have myself rightfully worshipped in the hearts and minds of my people because it is due to me and it is for their good. He says that and he says, and I will myself bring it about. That's an awesome God. An awesome God. Full of glory and goodness. To demand such a high standard and to grant that which he commands. Praise him. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. But offer to him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire full of mercy. Let me pray. God, you are an awesome God. Thankfully jealous for your own honor and thankfully full of mercy on the behalf of your people. And I praise you for that and I repent of my lack of concern for it. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.